bringing you the latest in tax credit news. This is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need the legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Nepogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, July 5th, 2011. I will start this week's podcast with our usual update on tax reform and deficit reduction talks in Washington, D.C. In the Low-Income Housing Tax Credit segment, I'll review additional changes announced last week to the 2011 HUD income limits. In our Renewable Energy Tax Credit discussion, we have several topics to cover. First, I'll review the guidance released by Treasury last week regarding evaluating cost basis for solar photovoltaic properties under the Section 1603 Renewable Energy Tax Credit Cash Grant Program. Then, I'll summarize a bill introducing Congress that would provide tax credit equity parity, or tax credit parity, for electricity produced from renewable resources. Next, I'll discuss the elimination of Oregon's Business Energy Tax Credit Program. And finally, I'll share an update on funding for the Rural Energy for America Program, also known as REAP or REAP. In our new market tax credit discussion, I'll remind listeners about the opportunity to comment on proposed regulations that would modify the new market tax credit to facilitate and encourage investments in non-real estate businesses in low-income communities. I'll also review the provisions of a new state new market tax credit created in Oregon. And finally, in historic tax credit news, I'll share more positive state-level news, this time about state historic tax credits in Maine and Ohio. Before I start, though, I want to take a moment to thank our listeners. Today is Tuesday, July 5th and we're over halfway through calendar year 2011. Since these podcasts started in November of 2007, we have had over 80,000 downloads, and we're averaging over 750 downloads a week this year. It's very rewarding to be able to keep the industry apprised of current developments in the tax rate area. And, as always, we welcome your comments on how to improve the podcast. Send your emails to cpas at novaco.com. And I'd like to give special thanks to Alex Ruiz, who works tirelessly to ensure that these podcasts provide both timely and accurate information. Now, if you're ready, let's get started. In general news, there were a few developments last week in the ongoing saga of negotiations about deficit reduction and the debt ceiling. Among the top headlines was Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid's decision to cancel the Senate's July 4th recess. Senator Reid scheduled a vote for Tuesday, July 5th, which will force lawmakers to show up to the Senate floor today. The House is scheduled to recess for the week of July 18th. Also, Senator Conrad told reporters last week that he will unveil the Senate budget plan this week. Now, turning to the Treasury Department, reports surfaced last week that Treasury Secretary Timothy Geithner may seek to resign as soon as this summer. The Washington Post reports that Secretary Geithner has told the White House that he will wait until the conclusion of talks with Congress 
over raising the nation's debt ceiling before he decides whether to leave. An unnamed administration official told the Post that Secretary Geithner recognizes the conclusion of these negotiations could provide a window for him to leave. At the time of this recording, Secretary Geithner had not publicly confirmed these reports. He did say publicly, though, and I quote, I'm going to be doing this for the foreseeable future. A quote that many labeled a non-denial denial and had, men, had many analysts wondering how far the foreseeable future was. If Secretary Geithner does leave his post this summer or later, his successor would be faced with a number of high-profile issues, issues that remain to be addressed by Treasury, such as the nation's housing policy, the future of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, as well as tax reform. Now, the Washington Post listed a number of rumored replacements. They include Roger Altman, an investment banker and deputy Treasury Secretary in the Clinton administration, Erskine Bowles, a former Clinton chief of staff who co-chaired Obama's Deficit Reduction Commission, Dr. Laura Tyson, a business school professor at the University of California, Berkeley, who served as chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Clinton, Office of Management and Budget Director Jacob Liu, Gary Gensler, the chairman of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, as well as Sheila Baer, the outgoing chairman of the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation. Rumors also began swirling last week that J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon could be a possible candidate to replace Secretary Geithner. The Post noted that any nomination hearing could raise the specter of a protected and nationally televised confirmation hearing unfolding in the midst of the 2012 election campaign. Kevin Hassett, an economist at the conservative American Enterprise Institute, predicted that the confirmation of the next Treasury Secretary is, is, and I quote, likely to be one of the more dramatic confirmations in modern history. Which brings us to this week's quote of the week. Jared Bernstein, former economic advisor to Vice President Biden, told the Washington Post that finding a nominee to replace Secretary Geithner could be a challenge given the confirmation process. Asked who might step up, Bernstein joked, and I quote, a very smart, well-versed economic masochist. In local housing tax credit news, on June 30th, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development released revised fiscal year 2011 income limits. These revisions were for certain areas. The affected areas are located in California, Colorado, Florida, Massachusetts, New York, and Puerto Rico. In California, six areas were changed. For the Oakland-Fremont area, only the 80% income limits were affected, and they saw a decrease of 1%. In the Oxnard-Thousand Oaks-Ventura area, the 50% income limit saw a 1% increase, the 30% limit saw a 1% increase, and the 80% limit saw a 7% increase. In Riverside, San Bernardino, Ontario, the change equaled a 2% increase for all income levels. In the San Diego, Carlsbad, San Marcos area, all income levels were decreased by 0.6%. The Santa Barbara, Santa Maria, Galita area saw a 7% decrease, yet a 7% decrease for all income levels. And in Santa Rosa, Petaluma, only the 80% limit was affected, and it saw a 1% decrease. Turning to Colorado... 
Pitkin County saw a half a percent decrease for the 80% limit. Turning to Florida, the West Palm Beach Boca Raton area, all income levels saw a 3% increase, and HUD removed the HERA special income limit. Then in Massachusetts, two areas changed. The 80% limit in both Dukes County and Nantucket County experienced a 0.5% decrease. In New York, the 80% limit for the Nassau-Suffolk area saw a 6%, yes, 6% increase. In Puerto Rico, six areas were changed, two of which saw changes of more than 1%. Arecibo saw a 3% increase for all income levels, and the Yakao area experienced a 2% increase for all income levels. Now, at the time of this recording, HUD had not said why these limits were updated, but Novogratz and Company is researching the subject. We will report additional information in future podcasts and in the Journal of Tax Credits. In the meantime, listeners should note that updates are currently being made to the Rent and Income Limit Calculator to reflect these changes. And if you have any questions about these changes or about the 2011 income limits in general, I encourage you to call my partner, Jim Kroger, in our San Francisco office. Now, Novogratz and Company has been urging HUD and Treasury to develop rules to simplify the overly burdensome calculation of income and rent levels for tax credit properties. These announced changes by HUD simply further reflect just how burdensome these calculations truly are. In renewable energy tax credit news, on Thursday, June 30th, the Treasury Department issued guidance for evaluating cost bases for solar photovoltaic properties under the Section 1603 Renewable Energy Tax Credit Cash Grant Exchange Program. The guidance released last week is intended to assist with preparing Section 1603 applications. The review of applications for payment under this Section 1603 program includes a determination as to whether the applicant has properly represented and calculated its cost basis. As such, the guidance outlines the process and principles that Treasury uses to evaluate basis. Treasury discusses the steps that reviewers take when scrutinizing basis, as well as the benchmarks that are used by the review team for solar PV cost basis. In the guidance, Treasury also discusses fair market value at some length. The document says that the review team does not prepare appraisals for energy property. Rather, the review team evaluates appraisals provided by applicants and prepared by independent certified appraisers with expertise in solar PV properties. Treasury then goes on in the memo to describe the three broad and interrelated methods that are used in valuation efforts, the cost approach, market approach, and income approach. Now, if you have questions about the new guidance regarding the Section 1603 program, please contact my accounting partner, Stephen Tracy, at 415-356-8000. And if you have questions about appraisals of renewable energy property, please contact my valuation partner, Blair Kenser, at 240-235-1701. Stephen is in our San Francisco office, and Blair is in our greater Washington, D.C. office. Turning to Treasury and its audits of Section 1603 grantees. Last week, Bloomberg reported that government investigators are auditing some of the more than $7 billion in renewable energy grants that have been made under Section 1603. They're auditing to determine whether the money was awarded properly and the recipients were eligible. 
According to Bloomberg, examiners with Treasury Inspector General's office are reviewing 14 of the 2,600 projects that receive grants. Novogratz and Company is currently researching the situation, and we will report in more detail in next week's Tax Credit Tuesday podcast. So be sure to tune in again next week for an update. In Congress, late last month, Congressman Mike Thompson and Wally Herger introduced H.R. 2286, the Renewable Energy Parity Act of 2011. H.R. 2286 would provide tax credit parity for electricity produced from renewable resources. As it stands now, this Section 45 Cap C Production Tax Credit, or PTC, provides a 2.2 cent per kilowatt hour tax credit for wind, geothermal, and closed loop biomass facilities. Energy produced using other technologies receives a 1.1 cent per kilowatt hour tax credit. The Renewable Energy Parity Act would increase to 2.2 cents per hour the tax credit for electricity produced through technologies such as hydropower, landfill gas recovery, wave and tidal energy property, and open loop biomass. If passed, this amendment would apply to electricity produced and sold after December 31, 2011 and would sunset in 2012. Now in state news, the Oregon Legislative Assembly recently passed a bill that would eliminate the state's business energy tax credit program. Commonly known as the BETC or better known as the Betsy, the state tax credit program provides transferable tax credits to developers of renewable energy projects. The Betsy was one of 20 tax credit programs that faced a review this year because it sunsets in 2012. Ten of the 20 sunsetting tax credit programs, including the Betsy, were not renewed. House Bill 3672 Cap A sunsets the existing program and replaces it with three different tax credits, a Renewable Energy Development Contribution Credit, a Conservation Credit, and a Transportation Credit. All three programs would go into effect July 1, 2011, and it would sunset on January 1, 2018. The Renewable Energy Contribution Credit is much smaller than the Betsy and actually functions as a grant for developers of renewable energy projects rather than a direct tax credit. Under the program, taxpayers contribute to a renewable energy development sub-account in exchange for reduction in their state tax liability. Taxpayers can contribute up to $1.5 million in a fiscal year and may carry the credits forward for three years. The Oregon Department of Energy controls the account and awards money as grants for the development of renewable energy projects. The maximum grant that the Oregon Department of Energy can award to a single project is 35% of the project cost up to $250,000. The entire grant program is capped at $3 million per biennium. The Energy Conservation Credit establishes a transferable tax credit for capital investment for which the first year energy savings yields a simple payback period of greater than three years. The Transportation Credit allows a public entity or a not-for-profit that provides transit services to receive tax credits for its state or federally funded transit services or alternative fuel vehicle infrastructure projects. As for the existing Betsy program, only applications received prior to April 15, 2011 will be processed. These projects must receive preliminary certification before July 1, 2011. If a project shows evidence of construction before April 15, 2011, it must receive final certification before July 1, 2014. 
However, projects that began construction after April 15, 2011 have until January 1, 2013 to receive final certification. In addition to the bill that sunsets the program, the legislature also passed HB 3606, which clarifies some of the program rules that were changed in 2010. Now, both HB 3672 Cap A and HB 3606 have been sent to the governor, who, at the time of this recording, had not approved or vetoed them. So all that I've discussed here is conditioned on, being, on the bills being signed by the governor. Now, check the Renewable Energy Task Force Resource Center at www.energytaskforce.com to see the text of the bills as well as to monitor their status. For additional questions, please contact Nicolo Panoli in Novogratz's Portland, Oregon office. And turning to agricultural funding, last month the House of Representatives narrowly passed H.R. 2112, an agriculture appropriations bill that provides funding for the USDA through fiscal year 2012. Now, the bill includes a 0.78% cut in all USDA programs and further spending reductions in several programs administered by the Rural Housing Service, including Section 515 Rental Housing Direct Loans. Now, H.R. 2112 appropriated funding, yes, it did appropriate funding for the Rural Energy for America program known as REAP, which provides grants and loan guarantees that allow farmers and rural small businesses to finance renewable energy projects. This funding was welcome news following a scare in May when the Agricultural Appropriations Subcommittee voted to completely wipe out funding for REAP. At that time, the American Wind Energy Association wrote to two subcommittee members to urge them to restore funds for the program. AWEA said REAP helped support more than 2,300 projects in fiscal year 2010 that leveraged more than $305 million in private capital. Novogratz and Company's Renewable Energy Working Group was a signatory on AWIA's letter. In H.R. 2112, the House agreed on amendments to retain and increase REAP funding at a level of $2.3 million for the next fiscal year. Amid the excitement of the $2.3 million in funding approved for the REAP program, we also know that the $2.3 million is a dramatic reduction in the funding levels from prior years. However, by virtue of having some funding, even at the $2.3 million level, it keeps the program open and operating and allowing further increases to be made either this year through the Senate and through negotiations with the President or in future years through the House, Senate, and President. For information about joining the Novogratz Renewable Energy Task Force Working Group, please call my partner, Tony Grapponi at 617-330-1920. In New Market Task Credit news... As the listeners will recall, last month the Internal Revenue Service released proposed regulations that would modify the new market's tax credit to facilitate and encourage investments in non-real estate businesses in low-income communities. The proposed regulations would allow a CDE that makes a qualified low-income community investment involving a non-real estate business to invest certain returns of capital from those investments in unrelated certified CDFIs at various points during the seven-year credit period. The CDE's reinvestment of returned capital and certified CDFIs would be considered to meet the reinvestment requirements of the New Market Task Credit Program. The IRS will accept public comments until September 8th on the proposed rules, as well as other potential changes designed to promote greater investment in non-real estate operating businesses. I discussed the proposed changes in detail in the July issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. To read that discussion, which includes comments about the proposals directly from Julie Hanlon Bolton, 
at the IRS, simply go to www.novoco.com backslash journal. The New Market Tax Credit Working Group is currently reviewing the newly released guidance and will be submitting comments to the IRS and Treasury regarding the request for comments. For more information about the New Market Tax Credit Working Group, contact my partner, Brad Elphick, in our Atlanta, Georgia office. And looking to Oregon again, the Oregon legislature recently passed Senate Bill 817, which creates a tax credit for investments in low-income communities. The proposal is based on the federal New Market Tax Credit, although State Representative Jules Bailey of Portland told the Statesman Journal last week that he believed Oregon lawmakers had, quote, created a program that is better than the federal program, close quote. SB 817 creates the Low-Income Community Jobs Initiative, a program that provides a tax credit against income and corporate excise taxes equal to 39% of the cost of a qualified equity investment. Investors receive the credits during a seven-year period. They receive no credits in the first two years, then a 7% credit in year three, and 8% credits in years four through seven. The credit applies to qualified investments made between July 1, 2012 and June 30, 2016. At the time of this recording, SB 817 had been sent to the governor for his signature. Novogratian Company is currently gathering information about the new state tax credit and we'll cover it in more detail in an upcoming issue of the Novogratian Journal of Tax Credits. And if you're not already a subscriber to the journal, I do invite you to request a sample copy and see the range and depth of tax credit information it provides each month. For your free sample copy, send an email to cpas at novoco.com or call 415-356-7960. In historic tax credit news, turning to the state level, the Ohio General Assembly passed the renewal of the Ohio Historic Preservation Tax Credit and Governor Kasich signed the bill into law on June 29th. The tax credit was extended at $60 million per year in perpetuity. The bill that extended the program also requires cost-benefit analysis of applicant projects. It permits, rather than requires, the Ohio Department of Development to rescind applicants that have failed to move forward in 18 months. It allows projects to be completed in phases. It also provides that insurance companies are eligible to use the tax credit requires expenditures over $200,000 to be certified by an accountant, and it allows the Ohio Department of Development and Ohio Historic Preservation Office to charge reasonable fees to administer the program. If you have any questions about the Ohio Historic Preservation Tax Credit, I encourage you to call my partners, Renee Beaver or Tom Bosha, in our Cleveland, Ohio office. And then going east to Maine, a bill that would do away with the sunset date for Maine's Historic Preservation Tax Credit passed the state Senate last week. The credit was slated to expire at the end of 2013, but the bill removes the sunset date and requires the Maine Historic Preservation Commission to periodically analyze the use of the tax credits. The commission will report to the legislature beginning in 2013 and every four years thereafter. Since the program's creation in 2008, 26 historic commercial projects have been developed with the tax credit, resulting in a total investment of $138 million in Maine, this according to the group Maine Preservation. This organization released a report in April called The Economic and Fiscal Impact on Maine of Historic Preservation and the State Historic Preservation Tax Credit. 
The report said the removal of the program sunset date will stabilize the investment pipeline for future projects. The tax credit program is responsible for creating approximately 595 jobs in Maine each year, this according to the report. Copies of that report and legislation are available online at www.historictaxcredits.com. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik, and I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novoco.com slash podcast or by subscribing to the Novogratik Report on tax credits in iTunes. Novogratik and Company, LLP, is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with 13 offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novoco.com.